0: If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, This morning we're beginning a new series called The Gospel According to Daniel. And the Old Testament book of of Daniel can be divided into two uh, very different sections. While, While Daniel is the central figure of all 12 chapters, chapters 1 through 6 focus on the prophet, chapters 7 through 12 reveal the prophecies. Chapters 1 through 6 are, are narrative stories about Daniel and his three companions living in Babylon, and chapters 7 through 12 are apocalyptic visions about the future of the world. And in his introduction uh, to his commentary on Daniel, Brian Chapel argues that these two sections often lead to two common errors in interpretation. And so before we, we dive into chapter 1 and, and start our study of Daniel, I, I want to Look at these two errors. First, when we study Daniel, we must avoid making Daniel the object of our hero worship. A few weeks ago, we were riding down the road and and Lacey and I were talking about a a podcast which I had listened to in preparation for preaching through Daniel. And out of nowhere, Tripp interrupts our conversation, which is not uncommon as you can imagine. But he interrupts us and he says, Hey, wait a minute, Daddy. You know the story about Daniel in the lion's den, too? See, on that particular day, Daniel 6 was the focus of their Bible story time at preschool. So it's, it's no secret that the first six chapters of Daniel are frequently used in children's ministry for the purpose of encouraging the next generation of the church to be like Daniel. If you grew up in the church, you're, you're familiar with those stories. Because you watched the the VeggieTales version of Daniel's in the Lion's Den. You you colored pictures of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You, You giggled at your Sunday school teacher's first mention of the name Nebuchadnezzar. And you may have sang the old hymn, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with Emphasizing the morality and virtue of Daniel. We can agree that that the prophet belongs in in the pantheon of Old Testament heroes. And we should never shy away from highlighting his courage, his, his determination, his faithfulness to God in a foreign land with pagan rulers. But at the same time, we can't celebrate Daniel as the hero of the story. He's not the primary hero. God is the primary hero. Chapel explains it this way. He says, God saves sinful and weak people. He preserves young men from impurity and old men from lions. He answers prayers and interpret dreams. He exalts the humble and humbles the proud. He vindicates the faithful and vanquishes the profane. He rescues the covenant-forsaking people by returning them to the land of the covenant. And he promises a glorious future to those of the sinful past. If you reverse the order and make God's grace dependent on Daniel's goodness, then you forsake the gospel message that Daniel is telling. So we can't read Daniel as some sort of, of, of call for behavior modification. We can certainly learn from Daniel's example, but we must always remain focused On the glory of Christ. And then, in several weeks, when we get to the second half of the book, we must evade another error. Second, we must avoid making Daniel the subject of our debates. Let me say if you are hoping that this survey of Daniel would result in an ironclad prediction from your pastor about the exact moment of Christ's return, then you are deeply mistaken. Sorry to disappoint you this morning. But since Daniel is one of the places in Scripture which speaks in great detail about the end times, it can serve as a spark for countless fiery discussions and arguments among the people of God about eschatology. But the truth is, when we finish studying the prophecies in chapter 7 through 12, we might walk away with more questions than answers, and I want you to understand that's okay. That's okay. We cannot let the mystery of the prophecies distract us from the central message of the prophet. As Chapel wisely notes, Daniel should give us courage against our foes, hope in our distress. Perseverance in our trials, because we know God will rescue his people from the miseries of their sin by the work of the Messiah. The righteous will be vindicated, evil will be destroyed, and covenant blessings will prevail because Jesus will reign. So for the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at a chapter of Daniel each week. And we'll approach each one of those with the same goal of discovering the gospel implications. Whether we are walking through the narratives of chapters 1 through 6 or wrestling with the visions of chapters 7 through 12, when we finish the exposition, we're going to land the plane with the same question How does this chapter point to Christ? What is the gospel message of this chapter? That's where we're going to end up our time today and our time for the next 12 weeks. We want to keep this focus on Christ, keep this focused on the gospel. So let's, let's look at the story. Let's work through chapter 1 together, starting with verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So we live in in this era of of 24-hour news, and we're constantly provided with political spin on every story that goes mainstream. If President Biden makes a off-the-cuff comment about COVID or China or the war in Ukraine, and, and you spent the evening after he makes that comment flipping your television back and forth between Fox News and CNN, then you would see the exact same story presented in totally different ways. Fox News will say, look, they got to rein this guy in. I mean, he is, he's losing it. We gotta do something about this. And CNN will counter, no, this is great. We love when Joe shoots from the hip. He's coming out of his shell. This is great. It's the same story, presented from different angles. And these first two verses of of Daniel are doing the same thing. Verse 1 speaks of secular history. Verse 1 is what you would read in a textbook. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But notice that verse 2 speaks in terms of biblical theology. Verse 2 speaks about the things that are unseen. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 2 also tells us when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, they stole some vessels from the house of God, and they placed the vessels in the treasury of their God. So essentially, they, they go into Jerusalem, they ransack the temple, and they grab several items as trophies of war. And, and their purpose in doing this, their message in doing this was saying, Our God is stronger and and better and wiser than your God. But Daniel puts in chapter 2 a a Lee Corso not so fast, my friend. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar overwhelmed Judah. Sure, he, he plundered God's house and he captured God's people, but he only took what God gave. Let me say that again. Nebuchadnezzar only took what God gave, what God allowed him to have. Understand, in Deuteronomy 28, God warned the Israelites, if they continued in their disobedience, then His wrath would come upon them. Verse 25 Cautions, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And then verse 64 adds, The Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So Daniel makes it explicitly clear. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar's story. This is God's story. God was judging his people for their sin, but also in the process, he was extending his presence among the nations. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Alright, so in, in recent months, maybe longer than that, there's been a, a, a great uproar About the subtle and and not so subtle ideological messaging in Disney movies and TV shows. Without chasing a rabbit or, or standing on a soapbox, let me say a couple things about this. One, parents, let me just remind you, you are the gatekeepers for your children. You decide what they can watch, you decide what they can't watch. You are called to protect them from the world and introduce them to the truth. You are their primary influence, not the think tank at Disney or or anyone else. And then two, this, this formula that we see Disney implementing, we see happening on college campuses and other places, this formula is not new. As King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, nothing is new under the sun. Today we're living in an increasingly post-Christian context which pushes us in a variety of ways, from a variety of angles, to conform to every idea and philosophy of this current age. But I want you to see That over 2,500 years ago, when Daniel and his friends arrived in Babylon, they were faced with a similar set of challenges. From 605 BC to 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and his successors would oversee three deportations of the Israelites before Jerusalem finally fell. But notice, the king of Babylon's defeat of the people of God didn't start with overwhelming them by sheer military force. His first attack involved finding the best of the best of Israel, separating them from their families, their communities, and their homeland, and assimilating them into the culture of Babylon. And so let's break down Nebuchadnezzar's strategy that plays out in verses 3-7. through Basically, he employed a three-pronged approach where he employed isolation, indoctrination, and compromise to integrate the brightest of Israel into the beliefs of Babylon. So first he used isolation. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. The king commanded his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and... Competent to stand in the king's palace. So Daniel and his three friends checked these boxes. So they're part of this first deportation to Babylon. Now now we can see what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's telling his minions as you search the southern kingdom for captives, I want you to look for the two L's learners and lookers. I want strong, handsome young men. I want wise young men. I want smart. I want brilliant young men. I want the cream of the crop from their next generation. As one commentator notes, their deportation was meant to siphon off the intellectual capital of a recently occupied state. So we understand the plan of the king, but to get the full picture, We can't overlook the trauma of the exiles. Remember, they were just teenagers. we, We think Daniel was probably around 15 years old at this point. And they watched as their home was invaded, their people were killed, and their temple was desecrated. Plus, once they were removed from Jerusalem, they were disconnected from all the means of grace that were found in Jerusalem. They were isolated from the influence of their parents, the, the weekly trips to temple for worship, the sacrificial system, the reading of the word and the prophetic testimonies of the preachers in Israel. As I've mentioned before, LifeWay research a few years ago found that 66% of, of young adults who grew up in the church leave it for at least a year from ages 18 to 22. And you could certainly argue that isolation is a large part of that college-aged wondering. When I worked in student ministry, I would tell our juniors and seniors on a regular basis, when you get to college, you alone will determine if following Christ is your lifelong commitment or your parents' Religion. Now look at verse 4. Again, after they round up all the first round draft picks, Nebuchadnezzar says, Let's teach them our, our literature and our language. So first, isolation, then indoctrination. And, and you may say, what, what's the big deal here? I, I took Spanish in high school. It helps me order at El Cazador. So why w- would a course or two in a foreign language matter. You know, wouldn't that be helpful as they navigate this new context? But Nebuchadnezzar's plans for them were much more elaborate. Listen to Danny Akin's explanation of the scope of their indoctrination. He writes, the University of Babylon gave them a first-class secular education in Babylonian language, philosophy, literature, science, history, and astrology. Religion would have been part of the curriculum as well as the mythology of Babylon, the, greatest of Marduk, the greatness of Marduk, and the importance of the pantheon of polyistic deities that dominated the ancient Near East. Also, dream interpretation, omen reading would have been in their required course load. Then he adds, Looking at their education, we realize the New Age movement of today is not really new. It's just the Old Age movement wrapped up in a different package. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. And so after isolating them from Jerusalem and indoctrinating them with Babylonian ideology, Nebuchadnezzar introduced the final step, compromise. Versus five through seven, we see two actions from the Babylonians which would have tempted these young Hebrews to compromise their values. First, they changed their names. And again, on the surface, that doesn't seem like a big deal. As a matter of fact, there are some commentators who believe they were given new names because the Babylonians would have struggled to pronounce their Hebrew names. But when we think about the context, that can't be what's going on here. Think about it, these, when, when these four young men at the center of the narrative left Jerusalem, they had strong Hebrew names which honored the one true God. Daniel translates to, God is my judge. Hananiah translates to, God is gracious. Michelle translates to, who is like God. And Azariah translates to, God helps. But once they arrived in Babylon, they were provided with new names which were intended to honor pagan gods in similar ways. And then in addition to changing their names, they changed their diets too. Verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily portion of food that he ate and wine that he drank. Nebuchadnezzar hoped all of the delicacies from his table would capture their imaginations and drive them further and further away from the traditions of their God. He envisioned that the great privileges associated with his court, the comfort, the power, the status, the influence, the reputation, the prestige, the the riches of his court would be enough to entice them and force them into choosing the vanity of the world over the glory of God. However, it was this issue which caused Daniel to draw a line in the sand. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse shape than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of you who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So in verses 8 through 13, we see Daniel's resolve. Verse 8 says Daniel abstained from the king's food so that he would not defile himself. And as we just covered, he and his friends had had compromised on other things. They assimilated into the king's land. They studied the king's curriculum. They answered to the king's names. But they wouldn't eat the king's food. Why? Well, the, the truth is, we don't really know for certain how dining at the king's table would have defiled Daniel. Uh, It could have been the kind of food. Perhaps eating at the king's table would have put them at odds with the dietary requirements of the Old Testament law. Or it could have been the origin of the food. the meat was previously used as a sacrifice to Babylonian gods, then their problem would have been with the Levitical prohibitions for idolatry. Or it could have been the provider of the food. Maybe they viewed sharing a meal with the king as a depiction of of unity. If they ate at his table, then they were entering his circle. Could have been one of those three things. We don't know. But for one reason or another, Daniel believed that acceptance of the king's diet would result in unfaithfulness to his God. So he resolved... I will not eat what the king eats, and I will not drink what the king drinks. Look at verse 9. And God gave. We saw that same phrase, or similar phrase in verse 2. Daniel's reminding us again. God is present and active in the story. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. At the very same time, Daniel was exiled in a foreign land and living in the center of God's will. However, as fond as the chief eunuch was of Daniel, he was also uneasy about going against the orders of the king. He told Daniel in verse 10, I, I fear my lord the king, who's assigned your food and drink. You know, what, for, for why should he see that you're in worse condition, the use of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? So they're, they're dealing with a, a lose-lose situation here. Option one is that Daniel and his friends could set aside their convictions and defile themselves. And then option two is they can go against the king's orders and their new friend loses his head. So the chief eunuch essentially told Daniel, Listen, Dan, I like you. You're a good guy, and honestly, I'd have no problem arranging separate meals for you and your boys, but if I do, I might get decapitated, and I have to veto any plan which may end with my head in a basket. So they were stuck. But then Daniel offered an alternative. He basically said, put us to the test for the next week and a half. Just give us vegetables and, and water. And at the end of the ten days you can examine us and deal with us as you see fit. Let's pick back up in verse fourteen. So he listened to Daniel on this matter, and tested them for ten days. And then the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. Daniel and his friends made a hard decision, which honored God, and in return, God honored them. Hebrews 11.6 promises that God rewards those who seek him. In other words, if you pursue God, if you prioritize holiness, God will look after you. Now, this is not a, a prosperity gospel promise. The application is not if you keep God's rules, if you live by God's standard, then he will always keep you healthy and wealthy. Brian Chapel clarifies that the rewards of holiness are guaranteed. But they are not always immediate. They're not always discernible. They're not always even present in this life. So the question we face, the matter of faith we are being challenged to consider is whether the eternal rewards are real enough to weigh against the earthly risk. The life of Daniel is meant to confirm that God is able and willing to provide what is best for his people for eternity. I mean, after all, Daniel was rewarded for his faithfulness. Things worked out in, in this particular instance, but don't forget, he was still in exile in a foreign land. He would still remain captive for the rest of his life until he was over 90 years old. And he would watch his people suffer. He'd see them. Worship foreign idols. He received visions about further turmoil. And worst of all, he would never return to his homeland again. But in the midst of those decades of pain, God sustained him. God kept him. God blessed him. And we can see a couple immediate blessings, which happened in verses 17 through 21. Verse 17 says, As for these four youths, God gave the learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king commanded they be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none of them was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Michel, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of Cyrus. So after these four youths determined they would not defile themselves, God gave them wisdom and welfare. Verse 17 says, God gave the learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And it's particularly interesting that God links wisdom to their Babylonian education. Because usually in scripture, wisdom is is most often associated with words and action which are made In the fear of the Lord, but here God gave them wisdom through the training of a secular institution. Now, we don't want to use this this point to take a hard turn and and launch a debate about the merits of of public school versus Christian school and, and homeschool, because for one thing, we have families in each camp. And also, I think you can make a strong argument for each path. You can lay out the the, the merit and value of each path, but we should recognize that if you are a Christ follower, while you should be committed to remaining pure in the world, your pursuit of holiness cannot remove you from the world. David Platt rightly states that our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf, but to disciple them and put them into service. You know, it's this idea that that Jesus talks about in John 17 of being in the world, but not of the world. God, God wants us in the world. He wants us rubbing elbows with the loss He wants us inviting non-Christians over for dinner. He wants us living and working among the culture, but he doesn't want us to be shaped by the world. He wants us to be sanctified by the truth. And then along with wisdom, God also gave them welfare. Verses 18 through 20 tell us that they are in favor with the king. Nebuchadnezzar found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom. The original language literally says they were ten hands better, which means their two hand, with their two hands, they were able to do the work of ten hands or five people. So that's where our story ends. And we, we can't deny the immense value of reflecting on the practical lessons which are present in chapter one. On college campuses and government buildings and on Hollywood movie sets, many are are running with the same formula, which Nebuchadnezzar ran with in 605 BC. And by the way, it goes back even farther than that. If we had more time, we could highlight how the serpent used isolation, indoctrination, compromise to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden, so we shouldn't be surprised by the enemy's strategy. When we encounter it, when, when we're back into a corner, when we're drawn to consider adjusting or shifting our beliefs, we must value our standing before God above our status among men. Church, we cannot and will not make a one-to-one comparison between ancient Babylon and modern America. But we would be a naive if we didn't at least acknowledge the rapidly changing landscape which surrounds us. And so in the near future, you may be presented with a similar dilemma to what Daniel faces here in chapter 1. And when that happens, You'll have to choose ease, comfort, pleasure, security, wealth, or God. So as we seek to remain undefiled in the world, we must recognize Nebuchadnezzar's strategy, and we must emulate Daniel's resolve. But at the same time, we must understand how this one story relates to the whole story. So let's circle back to that primary question. How does Daniel 1 point to Christ? Simply put, when we read about these four young Hebrews who remained faithful, who obeyed God, who became shining testimonies of his providence and grace we should be reminded of another Hebrew who would come 500 years after Daniel's death. Christ is the greater Daniel. Christ is the greater Hananiah. Christ is the greater Mishael. Christ is the greater Ezariah. As one commentator notes, there's a certain divine irony which is hard to miss. Daniel and his companions gave faithful witness before Nebuchadnezzar and they were brought to live in the king's palace. And in contrast, Christ gave faithful witness before Herod and Pilate and he was nailed to a cross. And yet, by his death, all who trust him will live forever with the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his eternal palace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are so encouraged by the examples of of Daniel and Hananiah, Michelle and Azariah. Lord, to to put ourselves in their shoes and to consider what these four young men went through. All of the fear and worry and uncertainty and anxiety of, of being captives in a foreign land. But Lord, you put concrete in their spines and you help them to stand boldly as witnesses for you. Father, in this ever-shifting cultural landscape, we need your help. We need your help so that we can be those types of witnesses in Lowndes County. And Lord, we, we don't want to dismiss or or overlook how Daniel's faithfulness points to Christ's faithfulness. That Daniel was faithful, and after 10 days, you ensured that he was healthier, more full-looking, for Nebuchadnezzar. And by contrast, Christ was faithful, and he was nailed to a cross, but then, Lord, you raised him from the dead. It's so, Lord, help us to see, as we continue working our way through Daniel over the next 11 weeks, Lord, help us to see how all of this, all of these stories from 2,500 years ago, happen in the shadow of the cross of Calvary. Lord, we thank you for your Son. We we give Him the glory. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.